You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. This is a beautiful room. This is a beautiful room, and we're going to have a great conversation. Hi, San Francisco. Hi. We're going to talk about black people tonight. Yeah. <laughs> this is... Um, an amazing time in America's future. And this is an amazing time uh, for black futures. And what an opportunity tonight in the next 65 minutes uh, do we have to begin to engage in a conversation and have just this incredible privilege to sit with and hear um, from some of the premier minds in black activism intellectia. Did I say that right, Professor? <laughs> However you want to say it. I was saying, God, I didn't get good grades. Like, I'm with the, some of the smartest people in the country. Um, my name is Latifa Simon, and I'm the uh, president of the Akhenati Foundation. We're going to spend, again, the next hour talking uh, to Alicia Garza, who is the founder, co-founder of Black Lives Matter, and she has about four other jobs, but also instigated this amazing research project. So I'm going to go to script so I don't forget anything. So I'm going to start over. Tonight, we are here to discuss the inaugural results of the Black Census Project, the largest survey, as said earlier, of black people since Reconstruction. The census was conducted by my dear friend and comrade, Alicia Garza and the Black Futures Lab. It's an amazing institution. This is an amazing body of research. Also here tonight is Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. I'm super excited to hear about your work. And as a founding director and scholar, but the founding director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at the American <coughs> University. Um, we are just extremely eager, not only to hear about your work, but your reactions uh, to the data, uh, the premier data that's coming out of this report. And joining us all the way from Chi-Town, from Chicago, uh, <laughs> is Dr. Kathy Cohen. Uh, Kathy Cohen is a force of nature and is an auntie of the young black renaissance happening in this country. Um, right? Yes. <laughs> Dr. Cohen is uh, with the David, or is the David and Mary Winston Green Professor of Political Science at the College of the University of Chicago. Can we just give it up for our panelists? Why I wanted to be on script. They are so amazing, uh, so profound. So what I'm going to do, what I'm going to try to do is engage us. And Dr. Cohen, I just wish you were here. I poured my wine for you. Uh, but it's okay. Drink, drink we're we're going to okay? get through it together. Um, I can't tell you how timely this conversation is and how much we have to learn um, from what you found. But I know as an activist and organizer, when I got the email to fill out the survey, you know, knowing that you have been organizing in 
the Bay Area and actually nationally for 20 years, starting off in Hunter's Point, why research? Why uh, the Black Census Project? Can you give us a little bit of origin before we get to um, our scholar comrades? You are also a scholar comrade. Um, but I want, I want to understand the origins. I want to understand the why. And I want to understand where you are now with these preliminary results. Give us a little bit of a summary. Sure. How y'all doing? Yeah? Good. I'm like, y'all a little quiet out here. I'm like, it's Tuesday. We made it. (laughs) So there's a lot of reasons that we decided to do this project. But the biggest one is that, to be honest, I and hopefully you are really, really, really exhausted with the reality that black people contribute so much to this nation and yet we are overrepresented in almost every disparity that you can think of and severely underrepresented in decision-making and in power, whether that be political power, whether that be economic power, whether it be social power. And the contradiction there is like something that keeps me up at night, to be honest. So in my organizing work here in the Bay Area, that's what I think about. How do we make black people powerful? in every aspect of our lives. Uh, Black Lives Matter was certainly an an effort to try and make black people powerful in a series of dynamics where every single day we're experiencing um, state-sanctioned violence, whether that be... There may be one person in the room that doesn't know about Black Lives Matter. So (laughs) actually, can we go back a couple of years? That one person, I actually see them to the back, stage left. (laughs) Actually, let's, let's go there real quick, real quick. Where have you been? (laughs) (laughs) Henry doesn't know yet, so we're going (laughs) to... Henry. Sorry, Henry. Uh, Well, Black Lives Matter was literally created to be able to um, address both the challenge, right, of black people being murdered extrajudicially, uh, which is a big fancy word for saying uh, black people um, being guilty right? And never presumed innocent. Um, And it was also a a call to action for us to be able to um, not only fight back, right, by changing laws, by challenging power as it exists, but also to unify and to come together and to begin to, not begin to, but continue to um, build the kinds of bonds between us that make us powerful in society and in the economy and in in politics. So y'all know this has been something that has, I think, transformed um, the country. And it's not just Black Lives Matter. It's organizations like Black Youth Project 100. It's the Movement for Black Lives. It's the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, I think that we have effectively made black people um, a focus of conversation. And now it's time to take it a step farther. And that's really where the Black Futures Lab comes from. And that was the point of the Black Census. Now, one of the things that I know from organizing is that there are so many black families in cities and counties all over the country who never get asked, what do you want for your future? Who never get asked, what are you experiencing every single day? Whether that be in the economy, in democracy, in society. And I can tell you firsthand, as somebody who knocked doors in Bayview-Hunters Point for 10 years, I can tell you that the only time that people are being asked what they want to do is when they're having to make a decision that's not good for them. Like what? 
Like, do you want to call somebody before we take you off to jail? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, uh, uh, there's an image that runs through my mind all the time that I like to tell people because I think in a place like San Francisco, we assume that these things don't happen. Uh, But I organized in public housing in Bayview-Hunters Point for many years. And one afternoon, I was sitting with one of our members, uh, Joanne Abernathy, my sister, I love her. And uh, it was a beautiful sunny day. People were outside having a good time. Kids were running around. And all of a sudden, we saw um, uh, what I would describe as an army approaching her home, dressed in different color fatigues, and literally running up to doors, banging on them, and busting them down, and running through people's homes. That's what they call gang raids where they're looking for uh, contraband, they're looking for people who um, they think are gang-affiliated, right? And whether they find someone or not doesn't matter. Somebody's life is turned upside down in that moment. But to be honest, then when I left that community later on that evening, I'm always struck by the fact that nobody else saw that. Mm-hmm. And when I tell that story, people go, that, somebody must have done something. Well, I can tell you firsthand, nobody was arrested. I can tell you as people in different colored fatigues were banging through people's homes, um, that children were crying, Mm -hmm. and that those people who were running through their homes were laughing, right? Because there are lives in the city and lives all over the country that literally do not matter. So the black census was an attempt to try and capture the experiences of people who are often erased or made invisible from larger society while also valorized in a really weird way. Yeah. Because we love black culture. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We love everything black except for black people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They love, no, nope, people love the rhythm but not the blues. Before we get into... <laughs> Before we get into really sort of what came out of uh, the data, we're also really good friends. Didn't you like that? That was a good one, right? It's a really good one. Now I actually have to act um, like I have some sense because I want to ask a question of Dr. Cohen um, and actually... You know, my, our scholar friend also on the stage, it'd be interesting if, if you weighed in here too. Before we get into the, your, the findings, what you've learned um, from literally tens of thousands of folks in less than two years in this data. Um, Dr. Cohen, if you could start us off and just giving us a li- just a little bit about yourself, um, but also why you think as a researcher, as a scholar, as an activist, um, as a black woman, mm. We should be thinking um, about why the importance is. It, why is it important to talk to Black people? Why is it important? I mean, we think it's important, but tell the choir why is it important that we're talking to these folks? Why we? Why? Why it's, it's critical that we understand the experiences of what Black people and people of the diaspora need and want for their futures. Um, why did you think this study was important? Well, you know. Uh, like I think everyone on the stage, I am committed to the liberation and the freedom of black people. I start with and end with the fact that I, you all are looking in the sides. I'm in the side. Hey, people. <laughs> I was like, what happened? You're looking to the side. Yeah. But I, I begin oh, I with and, and end with that I love black people. 
-hmm. Now that means loving the diversity of black people. That means loving the complicated nature of black people. Um, it means recognizing the complexity of black people. And I think if in fact we are serious about freedom, then it means that we have to make sure that black people are legible, right? That they are visible in all of their complexity. And I think this is the work that the Black Futures Lab is engaging in, right? Um, I live, let me start with this. I live in a city, the city of Chicago, where we have just elected uh, the first African-American cis woman lesbian mayor in a city that is, yes, let's clap, I guess. Uh, let's hold on to that, hold on to that though, right? I mean, it's, it's good at some level for identity politics, but let's not get crazy, right? Um, part of the importance, I think, actually of talking to, to, to what I would call kind of the margins of blackness, the beauty of blackness, the roughness of blackness, mm -hmm. is that in fact, we get a clearer sense of what it takes to be free. And that that freedom and the idea of political power cannot be invested in electing one individual like a Lori Lightfoot, yeah. right? Former prosecutor, a Kamala Harris or whomever. We know that we know that tale. We've gone down that road before. But in fact, kind of liberation and freedom is going to come from understanding the complexity of our lives, for understanding the ways in which black people both suffer and excel by crafting an agenda that's meant to, in fact, demand and enforce and challenge and arrive at liberation, right? Not through the election of individuals, but through the liberation of a community. Yeah. And I think the only way you get towards that goal is you understand the complexity of that community. And the only way you understand the complexity is in fact, you talk to people, mm. you listen to people, right? Mm. You let them dictate what in fact is the agenda. And then we figure out as a community, uh, in a communal and collective way, how we move as a community, not as an individual. Yeah. So I want to, I want to center the idea that when we talk about political power, we're not talking just just about electoral power, yes. but we're talking about a different type of power that's based in the kind of indigenous organizations and structure of black life. That's right. okay. oh. Professor, <laughs> professor. <laughs> now, Dr. Kenji, um, you know, we were talking. I, I wish I would have spoke first. It was I, so I, good. <laughs> I think you were like, I am like, where is the syllabus? Um, Dr. Cohen is, I mean, it was, that was like molasses of, of, oh, yeah. of, 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 of intellectual and just what we need to understand and learn and meditate on. You know, Dr. Dr. Kendi, um, you've also been working um, hand in hand uh, with with the lab and uh, have been a part of this research project. Um, I'm curious about your, your thoughts about the pathology of uh, of what has been black research. Uh, and black people in terms of how we've been looked at in voice and why you're excited also about um, sort of this, this, this process, which, you know, there's so much data now and there's also an iterative component of what you all want to do with this data, but why, um, Dr. Kendi, were you brought into sort of this nexus of research? Well, of course, I'm, I'm just really honored and excited to, to be a part of this, this uh, incredible conversation and, and to, to your point, um, I think when you look at the history of anti-black racist ideas, one of the central 
thrust uh, of this history, of this philosophy, is this idea that an individual black person is representative of the race, uh, and the race uh, can be represented through an individual. Um, and, and so that then allows for researchers to go out and talk to three or four or one uh, black person uh, that's typically a certain gender, typically a certain age, typically a certain political philosophy, uh, typically a, a certain sexuality, uh, and, and claim that that, that person uh, is representative because typically they're trying to make a case that their ideas are representative. Uh, I want to understand this a little bit more so like I'm in class. (laughs) Sure. Um, Because if I have one bad white teacher, all teachers are not bad. All white teachers are not bad. She just individually is not great and wasn't trained well. So why, again, sort of this overarching, and I use the word again, sort of pathology of, of blackness, the individualized pathology that says identification person A, and that is representative of a full people. Can you help us understand why that is? So it's hard for me. I can explain why I didn't sort of create this. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. We'll just act like tonight. I mean, I I think the reason is because for every racist lie Mm -hmm. about black people as a group, there's been individual black people who have been defying uh, those negative ideas or even positive ideas throughout history. Mm-hmm. And so in order to sustain the life of those ideas, they ha- we had to, they had to reject um, and more or less zero in on those individuals who became evidence, those anecdotes who became evidence. Um, and and p- typically people looked for individuals and anecdotes to substantiate the way in which they saw black people, the way in which they saw themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and that then, of course, recycled sort of over time. Um, and so for me, the, the reason why this, this census project is so liberating is because it fundamentally confronts that, that notion that we can understand black people by talking to a single or even a small group of black people. Uh, that in order to really understand the complexities and even to a certain extent the imperfections of blackness, uh, we have to talk to as many people as possible, and we have to be as ambitious as the Black Futures Lab has has been um, in order to really do that. And I think what's astounding is that this type of study has not been conducted in 153 years because people were so ingrained with this notion that we already know black people because I know this black person or that black person. Uh, and, it's, and it just sort of defies belief um, in, in many ways. So, you know, I'm excited to really sort of learn those imperfections because to me, the imperfections of blackness mm-hmm. or black people is what makes black people human. Mm-hmm. I love that. And, and just a quick follow-up question before we get into the data, before we get into sort of the explanation of what you found, what you were excited by, uh, what uh, sort of lifts you to want to move into the next space. Alicia, I'm curious when... You know, Dr. Kendi, when you talk about, um, you know, the, the, how exciting this moment is and how uh, interesting the data is, and your work at the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University, um, can you talk about the context of anti-racist research and how then you equate the research that was done with the Futures Lab as a part of that body? So I think when if you sort of distinguish anti-racist research from from racist research, uh, racist research 
thinks that the problem is people, in, in this case, black people. And so the, what a racist researcher does is they try to figure out, okay, what is wrong with black people? Um, and they go about trying, and we've been, researchers have been trying to figure that out for quite some time. They've never figured it out, um, <laughs> but they've been looking for, for hundreds of years. And so in, in contrast, anti-racist research says there's nothing wrong with black people. And there's nothing right about black people. Um, and, uh, but essentially, you have to understand black people uh, in order to liberate and advance and to assist black people, just like you would have to do any other group. Um, and, and I think that's what this, this, this centrist project is, is seeking to do. That's a, I, just, I, wanted, I just want more and more. Um, Alicia, I'm like, okay, I'm like, and then what? Um, I mean, the, the amazing conversation is we are talking about black people every single day. Um, so much became from young people who um, had the prowess um, to put their bodies on the line in the streets in the last five years at, on every cover of every newspaper, large newspaper and text in this country. We are talking about race. Let's talk about what you found um, as you all have sort of moved through the data. And tell us a little bit about how you started the research, its methodology, um, and, what, and, and yeah, again, what made, you, um, what made you leap when you started looking at uh, the findings? Cool. So nothing can be done without a team. Mm-hmm. So let me just say that the Black Futures Lab, we got two folks from our team here, Devante and Demetria. Give it up. Um, who are killing it. activists. So when we started the Black Futures Lab uh, last year, uh, we had our eyes set on 2020. And um, hopefully your eyes are set on 2022, because uh, if you were like me in 2016, you were curled up in a ball and you were like, what happened here? Mm-hmm. Now, for me, I wasn't like, oh, this is so surprising. I was like, this is really bad. And we cannot have a repeat of this. So uh, we put together the dream team and we said, how can we talk to as many black people as possible in advance of the 2020 election to find out what we experience every single day in the economy, in our democracy, in our society, and to ask a question that people don't get asked very frequently, which is, what do you want to see for your future? Yeah. And our plan is to use that data to inform a policy agenda that we then move in 2020 that is informed by more than 30,000 responses from black people from diverse communities across the nation that will not only supplant the idea that black people are a monolith, but it will also give contour to what it is that black people want to see. And I'll just give you the sneak peek right now. Please do. What black people want is what everybody wants. What a surprise. A good life, to live well, to keep your family together, to make sure your family is healthy, safe, and whole, to make sure that your children can grow up to be adults, to make sure that you have access to care when you need it, to make sure that the people you love have access to care when they need it, and that it's not going to break your bank, right? So surprise, that's the big secret. Black folks want what everybody wants. And what we want to say moving into 2020 is that black people deserve what all people deserve. And any candidate who seeks black votes should be able to substantively talk about 
how are we going to make black lives better? Not because black lives are better than any other life, and we're not gonna get into a conversation tonight. <laughs> we know that all lives matter, yet in practice, lives matter differently. Yeah. So if we wanna adjust that, change that, transform that, then we have to make sure that black people are front and center. So here's how we did it. Um, we used a combination of online methods and offline methods meaning we talked to people on social media. We uh, blasted it out to our friends and said, hey, please take, take the survey and tell all your friends to take the survey. And you could do it online. You could go to blackcensus.org and you could take the survey. Uh, we also partnered with more than 30 black-led grassroots organizations across the country because what we knew was important was that we were able to reach all the corners of our communities. So what does that mean? That means that we have collected responses from people who are currently and formerly incarcerated. That means we've collected responses from people who self-identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. We have also collected responses from people who don't subscribe to gender, who are gender variant. We have collected responses from people who are rural and urban. We have collected responses from people who are liberal and conservative and we have collected responses from people who are born in the United States and born outside of the United States. And the point of that, again, was to reach as many black folks as we could to give contour to who we are and to give uh, some contour to what it is that we want. Because we also know that as we are discussing issues that impact communities, there are ways in which our communities are pitted against each other. So. I was just in the beauty store yesterday, honey, getting these curlers. You know what I mean? It's great. <laughs> giving the braids a rest. People are like, oh, that's you. <laughs> yes, that's me. I'm not wearing braids. Um, and I was in the store, and I, I heard uh, three black women behind me. They were frustrated with the cashier, and so they started talking about how they, too, wanted to build a wall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These are conversations that are happening in communities, and if we're not making interventions to highlight the fact that black people are also immigrants, right? That not all black people in the United States are born here. Let me be clearer about that statement, right? Yeah. Then we're not actually having a real conversation around immigration reform, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay? We partnered with 30 grass roots black-led organizations to help implement this survey. We also didn't want to just extract data from communities, which people do a lot. Lots of people are studied a lot, and then they never get to use the data in the service of what makes their community whole. So what we did was we trained 106 black organizers across the nation, not just to administer the survey, but to learn the tools of grassroots organizing so that they could build power in their communities. We also made a commitment to all of our partners who helped to collect data that they would receive access to this data, not just the data they collected, but the responses from across the nation for free so that they can use that information to impact policy in cities and states across the nation where they live. Finally, we invested over half a million dollars in these organizations. Because what we know is that organizations that serve black people, right, are underfunded, Mm -hmm. Mm under-resourced, right? And so, again, we did not want to create an extractive project. We wanted this project to be something that could build the capacity of our communities. So that's how we did it. Um, 
I will say that um, this project would not have been possible without our partners and without an incredible team of people that I get to work with every day who I was like, so y'all have this idea and I think we can do it. And I'm not sure how we're going to do it. And I don't know how much money it's going to cost, but we got to figure it out. And folk were like, cool, let's do it. (laughs) It's just pretty amazing when you think about it. So I'm excited to share some of the sneak peeks with y'all tonight. Okay, so we're going to share some sneak peeks. And, but, you know, on deck, Dr. Cohen, I want you to be thinking about the power of data, how you've, as even, you know, prior to sort of this moment, on deck, not yet, because we're going to get a sneak peek, but how you use, da- oh, I'm supposed to be looking over here, how you use data, Dr. Cohen, um, to really sort of support the work on the ground to push through this frame of liberation. Hold that. Dr. Kendi, I want you to be thinking about (coughs) talking about how your work as an activist, organizer, academic um, has uh, sort of moved your work, not only in the academy and developing this institute, but has created this, your newest text, uh, Stamped from the Beginning. And I haven't read it yet, but I'm going to read that book. Stamped from the Beginning. I'm going to read this book. Uh, Again, having some of those eminent scholars in this room is just an amazing opportunity. So we're going to get a sneak peek, and then we're going to go to Dr. Cohen and uh, Dr. Kindy. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. So uh, before I give the sneak peek, I just want to say that I was uh, in an incredible yoga class this morning, led by my friend and teacher, Linda Burnham, who's here here with us. Linda Burnham needs to stand up. She is a mother goddess of of the movement. Oh, my God, you're right there. (laughs) Linda Burnham is so she's our movement mother in the Bay Area. Literally. (laughs) And. I was talking to her about this event tonight and we were talking about the project and I was saying, you know, what this really is, is like data reparations. (laughs) And Linda was like, yes. (laughs) Thank you for always entertaining my cuckoo ideas. I love that. Data reparations. So what is that? So the way that we talk about what we found um, is that we have more than 30,000 responses from black people all over the country. Now, some people shorthand that as data, and unfortunately, in the researcher world, you can't actually call it data. (laughs) Why? Which basically just means I don't get to say, this is what black people think about stuff, which you really shouldn't say anyway, because we don't all think the same about stuff. So don't go running around saying, well, I learned at the Inforum that all black people think the X, Y, Z, D, E, F, and G. You can't do that. Um, And the reason you can't do that, according to the rules, is because um, that you basically, when you do national surveys, you have to um, account for how much of the population any particular group represents. Uh, Black people nationally are something like 12 or 13 percent of the population. Um, And then when you get into the subgroups, right, you got like LGBT people, you know, who are a certain percentage of the population. You have immigrants who are a certain percentage of the population. We oversampled in a lot of communities that are not talked to. And so traditional traditional researchers go, 
Well, what that actually says is, right, that that's what those people think, but that's not what all black people think because it's not proportionate to how many black people are in the population. But I'm gonna introduce us to this term data reparations because for us, we don't care. Mm-hmm. We're actually really, <laughs> we don't care. We're so excited that we had, you know, more lesbian, gay, bisexual people who responded to our survey than respond to most surveys. We think that's dope. You should too. We're excited that people who are houseless responded to our survey. Yes. Mm. yes. We're really stoked that people who yes. um, were not born in this country and who don't like surveys yes. responded to our survey. We're really excited about that. So this is data reparations. Now, going back to yes. the sneaky peek. Uh, also have to give a quick shout out to Color of Change and Push Black, two of the largest online black civil rights organizations that have millions of members, black people and their allies, um, who helped us collect a significant chunk of these surveys online. So let's talk about economics, because that was a big issue for black folk who responded to our survey. (laughs) You like that? (laughs) Nobody going to come at me talking about, well, and I... (laughs) Because I will literally tell you, I don't care. This is data reparations. Uh, the number one issue that people cared about in our survey was low wages that are not high enough to sustain and support a family. How many of you care about that? Mm-hmm. You have just proved my point. Black people care about what all people care about. You like that? I just all lives mattered to you. Uh, <laughs> Nine in 10 of the people who responded to our survey said this was a problem, low wages, and 85% who responded said low wages were a major problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second major issue that people identified was lack of access to affordable health care. How many of you care about that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Again, proving my point, black people want what all people want. Nine in 10 of our respondents said that the lack of affordable health care and the lack of quality affordable housing was a major problem in their communities. Nationally. It's not a San Francisco problem. And LA I just want to make clear, um, this wasn't like a small segment of the survey respondents. This is across political ideology. This is across geography. This is across sexuality and gender that people are saying, these are the major issues that are impacting me in my life every day. Um, I also want to just highlight that, uh, surprise, surprise, we have solutions to these problems. <laughs> we do. And I'm raising that because, you know, people with Black Lives Matter be like, but what do you really want? And we're like, we have told you many times what we want. <laughs> but do you want that with us? So overwhelmingly, our respondents favored policies that help black families. For example, 85% favored raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. 79% favored increasing and expanding government aid for people who need it. Mm -hmm. 78% were in favor of increasing and expanding unemployment insurance. How many of you support those things? Yeah. Black census respondents said that the government should help families. How many of you believe the government should help families? Cool. We shouldn't just leave it to the market. 
Did I say that out loud? <laughs> That's actually a big fight right now, though, right? Mm-hmm. Lots of people think we should leave it to the market. Black census respondents say, no, that's the government's job. And then that's why you have people trying to dismantle government, but we'll get back to that later on tonight. 81% said the government should guarantee a job for those who want to work and can't find one. 86% said that the government needs to address the gap between the rich and the poor. 90% said it is the government's job to provide affordable quality health care. 90%. 90%. And again, y'all, liberal, conservative, rural, urban, queer, straight, across the board, this is what folks are saying. Um, 87% said the government should also provide adequate housing for people who need it. Let me also just dive into police and community relations. Um, You should know that... (laughs) Okay. You should know that 78% of our respondents said that they had at least one interaction with the police in their lifetime. 36% said it was positive and some negative. 20% said their interactions were negative on balance. Um, 87% of black census respondents said that the killing of black people by police officers is a problem in their community. 77% said it was a major problem. The other thing I want to add here is that 56% of respondents who reported negative interactions with the police, of that 56%, 38% said their first negative interaction happened before they were age 18. 36% said that before I was 18, I had a bad interaction with the police. 68% said that they had a negative interaction with the police before the time they were 30. Um, People who are more likely to report that they've had negative interactions with the police among our respondents, they were more likely to be men under the age of 30, Mm -hmm. to identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, They were more likely to report economic hardships, such as not being able to pay rent, having to cut back on food. Um, And they were more likely to report instances of discrimination in their day-to-day life. So being treated with less courtesy, feeling threatened, or feeling harassed. Um, Let me just share a couple of other quick stats so then we can keep talking. Y'all are getting like the first sneak peek. You know that, right? This is the first and the largest, right? Literally. In in 30 years? Wait, no, 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 no. Correct me. No, no. 120 years? 154 years. This is new research. Okay. 154 years. Anybody here 154 years old? (laughs) So in our sample, 17% of our respondents identified as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, plus. Um. To give you a sense of how big this is, Gallup polls uh, usually estimate the black LGBT community, no queer, they don't use that, um, at 5% in 2017. So ours was 17, the general is 5%. Um, Black folks who identified as LGBTQ were more likely to consider these issues a major problem. Deportations of undocumented immigrants, sexual harassment of women in the workplace, violence against transgender women, 
violence against gays, lesbians, and transgender people. You should also know that we are active. So 46% of people who identified in our survey as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered said that they or someone in their household belonged to an organization that fights for social justice. Mm. That's exciting. That's compelling. Um, LGBT people are less likely to say that religious communities are important to them Mm. as black people um, in our survey respondents. And... um, LGBT folk who are black who responded to our survey were more likely to say that Black Lives Matter was important to them as a black person. Lastly, I want to share some of the ideas that people had to improve their community. Mm -hmm. Um, Changing economic conditions, so better jobs, better wages, investment in black businesses, training and capacity building programs, and addressing poverty. Um, education in schools, so including access to college, better funding for public schools, more black teachers. Gentrification and housing, not a problem here in San Francisco. (laughs) Affordable and good quality housing, protecting the community from developers, and stemming the rising cost of living due to gentrification. Um, Drug violence and crime. So respondents to this survey were concerned about the toll that drug violence and crime in their communities is taking and would like to make their communities safer. Um, our respondents did not say that adding more police was the, was the way to do that. Uh, police reform was a major issue. Uh, so a large swath of solutions that folks offered included um, getting rid of police departments altogether. It also included holding police officers and departments accountable um, and community-based policing. And then finally, folks uh, suggested that it was important to invest in youth programs and community centers. So in addition to concerns that folks had about schools and education, the respondents to this survey wanted more things for young people to do and to be engaged in. Um, I should also say that one of the major uh, responses that folk had to how to deal with police and community relations was to hold police accountable when they do wrong in communities. Shocking. Right. Shocking. Right. Right? Right. So uh, the reason that we share this with y'all, and this isn't even everything, I only gave you a sneak of the sneak peek because we got conversation to have, um, Here's what I want you to take from this. Um, We have been thinking about what it is that we need, not only to change what's happening in black America, but to change what's happening in the nation. Mm -hmm. And as you saw, and as I asked you very specifically, how many of you want these things, almost every hand in this room went up. So we have to ask ourselves a question. Why are we not then? Yes. Um, working as hard as we could be to building the kind of movement that would transform conditions in this country together. And I'm asking that question because oftentimes when I do these kinds of conversations, and they're usually about Black Lives Matter, there's inevitably about five people that come up to me afterwards and say, you guys are doing great work. Good luck with your movement. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, it's just mine? It's just, it's just for black people. Oh, okay. Well, how are we going to change what's happening? How are we going to get 
the health care that we all want if we continue to keep seeing these movements for humanity and dignity that young people and black people and queer people and all of us that are like in those intersections are waging and there are people still standing on the sidelines saying good luck with your movement. Yeah. So Dr. Cohen, I mean, first of all, the analysis that we just heard is just beautiful and important and about really the survival of a nation. If we could, even in just the small frame of San Francisco, to put a mirror to our face and ask ourselves why black erasure, total black erasure from communities, and why do we and can we walk right past a dying black man on the streets and it becomes so normal, it becomes the way of life. My grandmother used to, when she would see someone without housing, I grew up here in San Francisco, she's a black Catholic, and she would do what Catholics do, and I think about if she lived here now, she wouldn't be able to use her arm. It would, it just, black people around this country continue to be dehumanized to the point, Dr. Cohen, you, um, and, and I'm so happy that we get to talk to you, you have been using data, you have been using the sort of the lexicon of research um, and, 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 and gathering young people for years and making sure that the embodiment of that knowledge sort of meets the lived experience and moves towards a sort of a front of liberation. What makes you excited about what we just heard? How have you used data? What, what can we begin to sort of push out as we learn more about the Black Census Project and its findings. Yeah, I, I just, again, want to say how excited I am about this project. I mean, really. And let me just say a few things. I'll be quick about data. So I, I, I think we have to be concerned, focused on data, because, in fact, data actually is a tool of white supremacy. And what do I mean by that? Yeah. I mean that every day the nation or the public is recreated through data. Mm -hmm. Every day, because of the 24-hour news media, there is a need for content, and that content usually often focuses on 27% of the population believes this, and poll after poll, survey after survey includes data, where you talked about the erasure of black people, where black people are minimized, are not centrally apart, the surveys don't come from the experience of black people. So in many ways for, you know, there are lots of us out here trying to do this work, but this is an important corrective to say, mm. no, 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 no. If we're going to have a political discussion, if we're going to kind of reimagine the nation, if we're going to think about futures, part of that has to include a discussion with black people, right? That we have to sit at the center of this and we get to define, in fact, even what we talk about. And so I love this idea of kind of d data reparations. Mm. But the other thing about data, and I promise I'll be quick, the other thing about data is that for people who sit outside of black communities who kind of work with kind of uh, misconceptions and, and kind of dwell in anti-blackness, data also is a, is a place for them to recognize themselves, right? To say, oh, wow, there is commonality in our need for health care. There is a need for an active state to protect working class folks and, and people trying to kind of make a living and provide for education for their kids, right? That, that there's a way in which our commonalities and our humanity, I would argue the deep humanity of Black people can be recognized sometimes, sadly, 
through a data point in a way that it can't be recognized when we're, it is in fact embodied. And so, you know, data in this case doesn't again do it all, but it provides another avenue um, for us to kind of do the work. Now, look, this is the last thing I'm going to say. So data is fabulous. Take I love data. I love data, right? Um, but data is one thing. It can provide voice, it can amplify, it does not transform, and it does not build a movement, mm-hmm. right? And so if we are serious, again, about the liberation and freedom of Black people, got to understand data and use data, but data takes us so far, right? What are the institutions, the infrastructure, the civic capabilities, the social movements of Black communities and of people kind of fighting for liberation that will use data to move the movement, right? I think that's the key. And that's what's so incredible about the Black Futures Lab, right? Because this is a project that's not just about the creation of data. It's the creation of data through a process of thinking about providing tools to organize. Because in the, in the, in the end, right, it's not just data, it's about the organizing. So I, I can do nothing but applaud the work that they've done and to say I'm all in. Yay. Wow. So when um, I'm going to get to you in a second, Dr. Kendi, um, when we listen to you talk about this work, it's like you're singing. Oh, that's sweet. And it's very, um, it's just humbling to sort of hear the analysis and to speak life and into sort of the participatory study of a, of a current people who haven't been killed off yet. There's a voice, there is a story, and it is, it is large, and it is complicated, it is beautiful, and it is a struggle. Um, I just, I think we could just hear you all day, so I'm going to come back to you and Alicia in a second. Um, Dr. Kendi, stamped from the beginning. Alicia Garza in the back talked about this book just kind of like being like gumbo. You just keep wanting to get into it. You know, you, t- you took a bite and you just couldn't. I mean, and there are very few academic texts that do that to the spirit, the spirit of, of, of an activist radical. Uh, Dr. Kenny, tell us about this work and again, why its relationship uh, to the story, to what we're talking about tonight. Well, I, I guess let me, let me start with a story about a census. Um, so in 1840, um, the U.S. conducted a census, and it was the first census that categorized people as insane. Um, and one researcher named Edward Jarvis, who was interested in psychiatry, tabulated the insanity data with race. And he found that black people were 10 times more likely to be insane in the North than in the South. Now, let me back up a bit. Um, Help me with that. So he, um, at the time, U.S. Senator uh, by the name of John C. Calhoun had for years, beginning in 1837, had been making the case that slavery is a positive good. It's a positive good for black people. It's a positive because we were being civilized in American slavery after thousands of years running into trees in the barbarism of Africa. Um, 
And that, of course, it was necessary, inequality and its permanence and its salience was necessary to building a strong nation. So it was good for America. Um, and, but he had no data to, to substantiate that claim um, that slavery was a positive good for black people. Um, Edward Jarvis decides to not only collect this data, but also analyzes it and says, slavery must be good for black people because freedom is driving them insane. (laughs) So he took the data and he took the analysis and, and published it in this obscure journal called the New England Journal of Medicine was the premier scientific journal in the world then as it is now. And as you would imagine, when John C. Calhoun heard about this study, he used that study and other pro-slavery theorists used that study and the 1840 census to substantiate until the end of the Civil War that slavery was a positive good. Now Jarvis eventually looked further, more and more at the data and found that there were some, there, in some northern towns, there were more black insane people than black residents. I really understand that. <laughs> so clearly, there was something wrong with this 1840 census, and he started pushing with other founders of the American Statistical Association to investigate the 1840 census But that essentially never happened. Slaveholders dominated the federal government. And John C. Calhoun, who was the Secretary of State by the mid-1840s, by the time this actually came forth, did a sham investigation and found there was nothing wrong with it. I mention that because this 1840 census was critical in substantiating slavery uh, over the course of, of 25 years. Another major census, the 1890 census, which was supposed to be the census that showed how black people were performing after no longer being enslaved. So it was, people believe, scientists believe, it was further enough out from slavery to really show what free black people are really going to be like. Mm. Because, of course, slaveholders were saying that black people would essentially uh, no longer be able to, to thrive uh, as a result of their freedom because they were by nature or nurture uh, sort of situated for slavery. Well, after the 1890 census and the findings of all of these racial disparities, you had scientists like Frederick Hoffman uh, who made the case that this census shows and the persistence of disparity shows that black people are not only an inferior people, but they're headed towards extinction. Mm. That that is how inferior they are, and that's how um, horrible a condition that they are since they are no longer under the beloved care of the white master. Um, And and so I'm just mentioning these two critical censuses as as times and as as data sets that were used at critical points in American history because this... This Frederick Hoffman study in 1896 substantiated Jim Crow, substantiated Plessy v. Ferguson decision that also came down that same year. And and, and so 
when it comes to sen- like, so when I even heard about the title of this, mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it just brought me back to those two senses, as well as other censuses, um, in which sort of data was collected from black people, but black people were never truly asked yes. about their life experiences, uh, about their desires for the future, uh, about the way they relate to the world and even themselves. Uh, and, and so the fact that this census decided to do that um, and, and decided to, and has also shown that black people are just like every other group of people it, it sort of contrasts with the ways in which censuses have been used historically and how we see those who are trying to use the next census, yeah. right? In, in ways to substantiate um, white supremacy. So, <laughs> so, I'm about to give you the question that I had to put down the clipboard because I want to give you, Ms. Garza, the question that I, from what we just heard, um, for the last year and a half-ish, you have uh, sort of gone to resource folks to say, I need money to support sort of this work around the country to get this thing out. You've worked with thousands of folks on the ground. You've worked with folks in the academy, um, the the highest branches of academy at some of the best universities in the world, arguably some of the best scholars to substantiate methodology. Um, You've asked amazing questions. I took the survey and it's like, what you want your kids to do in 20 years? I had never really thought of that. We just trying to get to Friday, right? (laughs) So what you've done is you have cultivated this body of knowledge um, of a living people um, who have lived through so much. Um, You have overly represented folks who have never been asked or even humanized within, within their own populace. How do you think, how do you want this new knowledge, uh, to move into the political space. We've got to take some questions in a minute, but, but why? But why now in this political moment, it's about 2020, but you also said people are going to recognize. They are going to see us in a different way. How is the Black Futures Lab, our movement, how do you take this and, and shift the nation as you all did with the movement for black lives? <laughs> yep, all that. Four minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a couple of things that we're doing, um, and we need your help. So the first thing is that we want to tell new stories about who black folks are in this country. And when this president was elected, uh, one of his major commitments, and he actually even changed the White House website for this, right? He said, my commitment is to restore law and order. And that was in response to what have been the uh, largest protests um, since the last period of civil rights that have happened over the last five years. Um, The way to restore law and order in this country is to give people dignity. And the way to give people dignity is to address the needs that families have in order to be whole. I know that's right. And so what we want to be able to do is tell new stories about who black people are and what we want And we want to be able to tell new stories about what black people are experiencing. And we want those stories to be able to shape policy. Uh, Because as Dr. Cohen said, right, data 
in and of itself is not organizing and data in and of itself is not power. Um, But we certainly could use, right, uh, more of a narrative that comes from many more people about what this country can and should look like. Mm -hmm. And I think that we've started that process with the black census. And I hope that what is taken from this is that people take this data and you take it to the people who are making decisions and you say, hey, not only is this what I want, Mm -hmm. but this is what people in my community want. And I wanna know what you're doing, right? To make sure that this is a reality for all of us. To that end, we are launching this year uh, what we're calling a Black Public Policy Institute that's called Black to the Future. And we see... (laughs) It's pretty good. (laughs) And we see our role as building the capacity of our communities to govern. So we want to actually take out the middle people. Right now, if you want to talk to your legislator, right, if you're lucky enough to talk to your legislator, uh, usually what you've got to do is get a middle person to help you do that. Right, um, But what we also know is that black people are incredibly talented. We have shaped this country. Mm-hmm. And um, it's important for us that black communities have the tools to design the policies that we need to be seeing in cities and states across the nation. So yeah. we don't have to wait for somebody else to do it. Yeah. We're experiencing these things firsthand. And so we certainly know what would work better. And so we're trying to build people's capacity to design policy that will change people's lives. Well, we're going to begin to take some questions. And I know there's so much more to say. And we're going to get that out. If, um, if Kriya walks up to the mic, folks should start walking up to the mics right now thinking about your questions. If she asks a question, just say whatever you want to say. Okay, cool. <laughs> So folks can start, um, you know, lining up. I'm sure you have questions for this panel. But I, you know, as you're lining up, again, I think we have to sort of give so much thanks and praise to the brilliance that is on this stage. Uh, For folks to completely give of themselves uh, sort of spiritually and intellectually and telling sort of the stories, um, the pedagogy of of, of struggle, of of life, of death, of promise, um, of this historical legacy of of racism in this country um, and the continuance sort of 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 that ailment, of that pathology. and then minding and building, uh, continuing this, the new knowledge of the possibility of right now, and really forcing folks in power um, to understand um, how they're going to stay in power based on what the communities need. Let's take the first question. Great. We're going to take about three to four audience questions just to give everybody who's lining up, if you have other questions, maybe stick around after and you'll get lucky and somebody will answer them for you. We've got our first question right here. Yes, hi. Um, my name is Lonnie Brooks. I'm an associate professor at Cal State East Bay, and I'm thrilled to be able to listen to your vision of the future. In fact, that's part of what I do, and part of the idea about futures forecasting is so important to me. Uh, I'm, I'm a local organizer for the Blacks Bucket of Arts movement uh, that's across the nation and Africa and Canada and Europe. And what my question is is basically... There's so many different levels of futures organizations right now looking at the black future. There really is a renaissance. And I'd love for us all to kind of be in conversation with each other and really uh, create a global movement for the black diaspora, a vision of the future that unites us all. There's so many different levels. I mean, futures is hot right now, too, because we all see a future that's 
better than what our current state of America is. And I just want to see how can we do that together? Great. Thank you. Thank you. What we're going to do is I'm going, because of time, I'm going to take uh, the three more questions. And after our speakers uh, are going to mingle a little bit so that you can get some information. It's important also to go to people's Twitter handles, uh, the, uh, both doctors and uh, the Black Futures Lab to sort of stay in touch. We'll take the three, three other questions and make sure we frame them as a question, and then we'll have the pan- panel answer them. Um, and then I have one last question for each panelist. It's quick. Okay. It's the surprise question, the Commonwealth Club question. Yeah. All right. So uh, the n- next person on the mic. Hi, I think I saw some T-shirts for Black Futures Lab on the front and To God Be the Glory on the back. Is that right? Can you comment on the spiritual aspects of this work? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Next question. Uh, Hello. Uh, My name is Abdul Hakim. I'm a student at San Francisco State. Yes. Um, What can we do to address the black isolation problem? Because we are isolated in pockets, even in suburbs, away from other people. How, how can we address that? Mm-hmm. Thank you. And one last question. Hi, um, Michael. Hey. <laughs> Hi. Um, so my question is, as you mentioned, um, black people are not monolithic, and there are different... Um, I was wondering if there were any specific areas where you saw any um, stark differences of opinion, uh, a policy, and how um, perhaps moving forward that might be... You might be able to build some sort of consensus or unite competing opinions... Um, between um, black people who might have um, a different end of the spectrum. Or yeah, thank you. Okay. There's black, we're talking about black isolation. We talked about the, 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 the false uh, fable of the black monolith, uh, the spiritual aspect of sort of the, the, this movement. And did I forget one of the ideas? Isolation. And futurism. All right, so why don't we start with you, Dr. Cohen, and uh, we will move over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Here we are. Yes. <laughs> and then, and then we'll give Alicia the last word. We'll go in a circle. Uh, Want to address any or one I'll of those questions? I'll address any of that. I, I, I think to the question of, for example, monolith. I, this is a theme we've been talking about. I think all night that there are um, deep commonalities because of, in fact, our experience and struggle against white supremacy. But um, the way white supremacy is also structured is that there is provided some forms of mobility for some black people that can cause real differences based on class, based on gender, based on kind of uh, sexual identity, sexual performance. And so, you know, I, I think as you're building a movement and we continue to build a movement, we're looking for points of common in commonality, but uh, we always say not uniformity, right? Um, and you have to build a movement that is capacious enough mm. to disagree, even though we are all committed to the liberation of each other. So I, I think it's very clear um, that black people can be different um, and that we are not a monolith, but there are certain kind of goals in terms of our liberation that we can all kind of, or many of us, most of us can ascribe to. Yes. Okay. Excellent. Dr. Kendi. Well, I think I can speak very briefly about the question about isolationism. Um, I think, first, one of the things that I've found sort of traveling across this country is that even in places and spaces where there are not many um, black people, that black people who love black culture uh, and who love black people typically find each other. Um, and, and formulate spaces and very cohesive spaces, 
even though they're not many in number. Um, and typically, they're more likely to bring in allies, you know, into those spaces. Um, and and so, but of course, we can never sort of forget that those types of smaller spaces are typically the ones that are more likely to be subjected to white terror. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we, of course, when we're thinking about sort of defending um, and, and safeguarding black America from this growing sort of problem of, of, of white terror, we have to recognize that they are going to go to those spaces where a lot of Muslim people worship or Jewish people worship or a lot of black people uh, worship in churches. But they're also going to pick off those individual isolated black people, you know, as well. And so we need to figure out mechanisms to safeguard those people. Um, and uh, that's certainly something that's at the forefront of my mind. Excellent. Thank you so much. Alicia. Oh, yeah. Any one of those four really amazing thoughts and questions you want to address? Our T-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just to answer your question, Mickey, where'd you go? Did he leave? Oh, yes. Your question uh, one place of difference was around police in schools. And I can talk more about that with you. It was split basically half and half, mm-hmm. where some people thought, sure, let's bring in more police in schools. Other people said, absolutely not, don't bring in more police in schools. That's an example of a place where, the, mm-hmm. uh, where folks diverged in terms of opinions and how to move forward. Um, next, uh, well, April 25th, if you want to get the full download of what people said, what really went down. Um, Come and hang out with us at Betty Ono Art Gallery, April 25th, 6 to 8 p.m. Find a Black Futures Lab t-shirt to get more information. Our shirts uh, and the role of spirituality. I can't go that far into this conversation because we only have one minute left, Mm -hmm. but I can tell you where it came from. Um, As soon as we started the Black Futures Lab, we put the census uh, project up on the website. We started talking to people, come do the census, and we got notes and donations from black people all over the country. All over the country, and I mean all over the country, every day, five, six, 10, 20 notes with donations coming in across the country. And one of my favorite um, was a, a woman from Youngston, Ohio, who um, gave us a $10 a month donation, which is significant. Um, and she wrote in the dedication, To God Be the Glory. Now, that was a reminder of people like my grandmother, right, who would see a project like this and say, baby, thank you. Thank you for making sure that our voices are counting and making sure that we matter. So we put that on the back of one version of our T-shirts to remind us, right, of the ways in which black people um, have been resilient um, through very, very tough times over many, many generations. Alicia, I want to ask you, in one sentence, and this is, I understand, the Commonwealth way, (laughs) one thing that can change the world. Wow. One thing, my best idea to change the world. Idea to change the world. My 62nd idea to change the world is to make black people powerful in every aspect of our lives. So I want to thank Alicia Garza, Dr. Kendi, 
and Dr. Cohen for your fantastic work and for joining us tonight. And for all of you at Inform for gathering together to have a conversation about black lives. The Black Futures Lab is amazing. And the Black Sentence Census is the future. I'm Latifah Simon, and thank you for joining us tonight. (laughs) 